Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Greetings and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing over there, Nathan? Oh, not bad, Clinton. It's good to hear from you again. Yeah, it's been a little while since we've done one of these interviews, but we're back in the, the swing of things. In fact, the guest that we have joining us today is Maureen Kondik. Now, Dr. Kondik is an associate professor of neurobiology and anatomy at the University of Utah School of Medicine with an adjunct appointment in the Department of Pediatrics. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago, her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley, and postdoctoral training at the University of Minnesota. Since her appointment at the University of Utah in 1997, Dr. Kondik's primary research focus has been the development and regeneration of the nervous system. In 1999, she was awarded the Basil O'Connor Young Investigator Award for her studies of peripheral nervous system development. In 2002, she was named the McKnight Neuroscience of Brain Disorders Investigator in recognition of her research in the field of spinal cord repair and regeneration. Her current research involves the control of human stem cell potency and differentiation. In addition to her scientific research, Dr. Kondik teaches both graduate and medical students. Her teaching focuses primarily on embryonic development, and she has taught human embryology in the University of Utah School of Medicine's curriculum for 20 years. Dr. Kondik has a strong commitment to public education and science literacy. She has published and presented seminars nationally and internationally on science policy and bioethics. Marie, and welcome to the show. Hey, it's nice to be here. Yes, uh, great to have you joining us. You know, Nathan and I have uh, been familiar with your work for some time, and we thought you'd be great to com- come on and uh, talk about some of these topics from more of a uh, professional, uh, knowledgeable, expert point of view, essentially. So we're glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Now, now we're recording this show live. If you have a question for Maureen, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646 646- Six six eight eight five nine seven. Today, what we thought we'd bring Maureen on to talk about is regarding the science of human development and fertilization. Seeing as though she works in that area, we uh, thought this would be a good um, 
good area to, to discuss, especially since just based on the email interactions that we had before before coming on here when we were talking about where to go, you know, Maureen actually had some told me some things that I were actually kind of news to me. And so uh, I definitely want to hit on some of those as well. But the first question that I usually ask uh, the guests who come on to this show just to get to know you a little bit better is how did you become pro-life? What were the events or things you learned or that kind of went into your uh, taking a pro-life stance? You know, it's an interesting question, and it's not the first time I've been asked. Do you think I would have a better answer to it? But when I was very young, I I, uh, was easily bored. And I remember when I was about 12 years old going to the library and discovering biographies Mm. and being the rather nerdy child that I was at the time. I started at A and I started reading through the biographies. I thought they were great. They were like little stories, but they were about real life people. And when I got to C and I read the biography of Maria Curie, I was completely transfixed. It was was a um, epiphany moment. I decided right then I had to be a scientist. And I I tell this story because, you know, I I was going to win the Nobel Prize in physics and chemistry, which of course never happened. But but I think it reflects very, very... um, very cleanly on on kind of my inherent focus. I'm I'm really a scientist at heart. I go the facts drive me. I I want to understand how things work. And when you ask how I came to a position of respect for the embryo, I think the facts led me there. Um, I think when you look objectively at the science of human embryology, there's no other conclusion than than that a human embryo is a human individual. And mm. uh, there are only so many ways to to view what rights are are owed to an to a human individual and uh my personal view is that they're viewed the, they're owed the same rights as anyone else yeah now were you already on your path to become a scientist when you became pro life or did that kind of happen before or what was the kind of the timeline there i don't think it's something i thought about very much until i had until i had sufficient information to formulate a, a okay. um, an evidence based opinion on so uh, kind of the time course was became a scientist and started thinking about it and perhaps discovered that it was a position that I had never been antagonistic to, but I certainly mm. couldn't have articulated before I learned enough yeah. from reality to articulate it. Do you find that your your colleagues tend to lean more pro-life, more pro-choice, kind of a combination of the two, or how, how do they kind of lean on this issue? Oh, I think the vast majority of scientists are are solidly utilitarian and and many mm. of them um quite aggressively atheistic and yeah. antagonistic. That was actually something uh we talked about with uh, with a previous scientist who'd come on uh to talk about the abortion pill reversal. He he mentioned how scientists I I forget what what the timeline or if you mentioned the timeline in this, but they they sort of uh shifted from an Aristotelian uh view into a more utilitarian view. And so I I guess maybe becoming pro-choice kind of comes with that territory. Mm-hmm. I think I think it does, and I think, you know, a component of it that many people don't appreciate, um, perhaps as much as those of us working in the field do, is mm. that um, scientists don't really think about these issues very much. I think, I think a lot of their um, pro-choice uh, stance and um, belief that the embryo mm. is, is merely a clump of human cells on its way to becoming a human being, I think these are mm. almost knee-jerk kind of articles of faith. They... Uh, the vast majority of scientists I've I've talked to, even fairly knowledgeable ones, are so busy, um, you know, with the huge explosion of information in the modern times, uh, you know, it's impossible. It's just impossible to keep up on just the basic facts of your field. 
And so mm. scientists become increasingly specialized, and as a consequence, they really don't have a lot of time for ethics and for things that they see as outside mm. of the important questions of how do they get their next grant and write their next paper. Yeah, Colleen, and I think you and I would both agree that it's the philosophers who actually end up spending too much time reasoning about these and come up with some bizarre conclusions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that, could be, uh, <laughs> that could be true as well, because because the philosophers are faced with the opposite problem. The, the mountain of information can be so incredibly intimidating that mm. there's an overwhelming tendency to simplify, to to make it to make it simply a matter of, and often that is based on pretty outdated uh, information, and or or information that omits really critical components of the mm. question. And utilitarianism, I think tends to find some popularity among philosophers too, just like it does among scientists. But interestingly, what I actually learned is that uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson, who's probably one of the most famous philosophers in the abortion issue who came up with that violinist thought experiment, she actually wrote a pretty persuasive essay critiquing and criticizing utilitarianism, which I thought was pretty interesting from a pro-choice philosopher. Hmm. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of let Nathan lead the, uh, the interview here. Uh, I do have some questions. If Nathan covers them, I'll just let him go. But it, I might chime in once in a while uh, with a question. And then at about 3.30, we'll, uh, we'll take a, a brief break because I do have, have a conference ad to play. But then for the most part, I'll, I'll let Nathan kind of carry the, uh, the interview here. So go ahead, Nathan. Just first question, kind of going back to something you just said about where the science lies and just kind of the, what is heard on the street. Hasn't science refuted the notion that life begins at fertilization or says that some begins sometime later in pregnancy? So your question is, has science refuted the idea that, that life begins at conception or does science deny that life begins at conception? Do scientists deny that? Why don't you restate it? Make it, make it a little more clear for me. I'm, I'm, I, got a, I got kind of confused by your question. Probably more the latter. Does science confirm when human life begins, and can we know the answer to that? Because that's something that you hear about day in and day out, not so much at the academic level, but more at the street level. Right. I think it's it's very common for people to assert that nobody knows and that science can't resolve this question because ultimately it's not a question of science. It's a question of values. When do we When do we as a society or as individuals choose to look at the embryo and say, it's human for me? But I think that's a false answer. I mean, I think I think that uh, the science of human embryology is, is very, very clear, and there's a mountain of evidence that can be brought to bear on this question, and I believe the evidence can only be interpreted in reasonably, at least, in one way, and that's to the conclusion that human life begins at the instant of sperm egg fusion. I think I remember asking you about this a uh, while back. You sent me a document different scientific quotations from the peer-reviewed literature and from embryology textbooks. And I actually, I had a bit of a humorous experience a few weeks ago. I was doing a pro-life outreach at a local college campus and somebody challenged me on this. Well, I happened to bring that document with me so I could show it to people. And I showed it to her and she hadn't even researched any of the topic and was completely blown away by what the literature actually says. I think, unfortunately, when it comes to the academic side and the peer-reviewed literature side, it doesn't get filtered down into the popular culture so much. I mean, we've uh, had the videos that have gone around by uh, the infamous Bill Nye, the science guy, claiming that human life does not begin <laughs> fertilization. And I remember we right. talked about that also. I think I think that part of the difficulty is um, there's often a difference between what the evidence says and what scientists will say. So 
um, I compiled that list of quotations from the literature, and I've always found it quite interesting that if you go to the experts, if you go to the people who whose careers are invested in doing research on human embryos, so presumably the people who should know the most about it, those are people who also have a very serious conflict of interest. And they're keenly aware of the fact that this is a very politicized question. And so they're they're often extremely careful to to say, well, no one really knows. Um, well, there's a lot of debate. Well, if we go back, Aristotle said this, and then, of course, Thomas Aquinas said this, and, of course, you know, we can find people who believed there were little humans living in sperm. And, you know, and so there have been a variety of opinions across history, and no one really knows. Um, so they'll say that. Interestingly, if you go outside of that very small small um, slice of people who have this inherent conflict of interest and who are very aware of the politics, you find the quotations that, that um, I provided. You know, people are very, it's very clear to people when life begins. It's very clear to scientists when life begins because they, the ones who are willing to say it are people who don't, who don't have anything invested in not saying it. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, you know, they'll never say that kind of thing about evolution. Like, oh, you know, some people believe the Earth is 6,000 years old. Some people believe, <laughs> but no no one really knows how old the Earth is. They just don't say that because there is a scientific answer. And then even if certain religious traditions disagree, the scientists, you know, will still stick with what they believe is the scientific answer. And yet when it comes to the scientific answer on when human life begins, suddenly, you know, it's all up in the air. Science has been wrong before, all of these kinds of things. Yeah, I think I think it's that in part. Um, as I said, driven by the politics and by the inherent conflict of interest for people who don't want to raise controversy about the research that they do. But I think it's yeah. also a very difficult question to think about. I mean, I think I think the question of when life begins really turns on two two underlying important questions. One, if if a new human life forms from the f- fusion of sperm and egg, no no reasonable person believes that sperm or eggs by themselves are human beings. They're cells. Mm-hmm. They're human cells right. which are specialized for reproduction. Mm-hmm. So those two cells get together, and at some point a new cell is formed. And that's one scientific question. When in the interaction of, of sperm and egg do we get a cell that's a distinct new cell? So many people are confused about this. Even scientists will talk about, quote-unquote, a fertilized egg, as if an mm-hmm. egg that's fertilized is just a modified gamete. And it's a natural mistake to make because sperm are very tiny compared to eggs <laughs> and right. eggs are very large. And so, you know, an egg doesn't look to have changed very much once it's fused to a sperm. But uh, it's a mistake that reflects kind of a, a sloppy thinking about the underlying concept of when you get a new cell. So that's that's the first question, and we can return to that one if you're interested. How do we know that? Um, the second question is, when, since that cell that results from the fusion of sperm and egg goes on and starts behaving in a whole bunch of odd ways and doing all sorts of things, at some point we know a baby is going to come out of it. <laughs> but when does that happen? You know, it's a very continuous right. process. And so when in this process of, of all the events that happen after fusion of sperm and egg, can you point to that thing and say, well, now it's a human being? And that's a separate kind of question. So the first right. is, when do we get a new cell? The second one is, when is that cell or the product of that cell um, actually a human being? And I think I think those two questions are not the kinds of questions scientists typically ask. 
You know, they're they're very interested in what is it made out of, what can I do with it, how can I mess with it, <laughs> how can I understand the processes that are happening. Um, but but the question of when is it a new cell and when is it not, and when is that cell a human being and when is it not, I think those are those are rather abstract for the kinds of things that science scientists typically concern themselves with. And then you also mentioned about when in the process of fertilization, and Clinton asked this, we were talking about this uh, via email with each other, when in the process of fertilization it's considered essentially a zygote or a new type of cell? Mm-hmm. So that's the first question. When do we form a new cell type? And although many medical texts will discuss the events subsequent to the fusion of sperm and egg, um, as the quote-unquote process of fertilization, I strongly disagree with that characterization. I think it comes about quite naturally um, from the fact that sperm and egg are very, very specialized cells. And particularly sperm, the DNA within a sperm has been modified to protect it during its rather rough and tumble traveling down the female reproductive tract to do its business. So we don't want to damage that DNA. We want to protect it. And because of that, we package the DNA inside of sperm very, very um, tightly in a confirmation that cannot be used uh, by the cell for driving development. So once sperm and egg have fused, we have to undo that process. <laughs> and so a lot of unique mm-hmm. events happen during the first 24 hours after sperm and egg have fused um, that are largely designed to uh, reconfigure the nuclei, both of the egg and the sperm, so that they're capable of supporting development, uh, and dealing with the fact that the nuclear material is in two different compartments, one coming from the sperm and one coming from the egg. Uh, these these events only happen once in your whole life. <laughs> and because of that, because they're unique events, people have tended to see them all as part of this so-called process of fertilization. So when you read embryology textbooks and they say, well, fertilization takes 24 hours to complete, what they're talking about is um, sperm and egg get together, their surfaces bind to each other, and those two surfaces, the outer membranes of the cells, will fuse in a very rapid event that takes less than a quarter of a second to complete. That's fusion. And then after that, you have a single cell. It's a new cell because it has a new material composition, so it has molecules inside of it that weren't present in either sperm or egg, Um, and it enters into a new pattern of behavior. And those two criteria are the criteria for when we have a new cell. We use those throughout the scientific enterprise. Everybody agrees to them. There's no controversy about it. And based on those criteria, you get a new cell at the instant of sperm and egg fusion. And all the events that happen after that are simply events that that cell is undertaking. So there is no process of fertilization. There are some unique events that happen in the first 24 hours of life. But in that instant of the fusion of the outer membranes of the two cells, we have a single cell that functions as a unified whole. Um, It isn't in the process of becoming a cell. It is a cell right then. I really appreciate you clarifying that, actually, um, because I've read, uh, I believe it was Patrick Lee in his book, Abortion and Unborn Human Life. He talks about this whole process, and I think Frank Beckwith touches on it also, that it's the fusion is essentially when a new entity is involved. Now, I've kind of always wondered if it was after that 24-hour period when all those processes and those, excuse me, those events that you talked about were already in place, 
when we can definitely say that a new entity like a human being is in existence. Am I not correct in my understanding of that? I think you're not correct. I mean, I think I think scientists routinely have to decide when a new cell type comes about. Either in the laboratory, we've we've messed with with the cell in some form, or in an embryo during the process of development. So there are clear criteria for when you have a new cell type, scientific criteria, and those criteria are when there's a change in what the cell's made out of, or when there's a change in the behavior of the cell, and those two things often come together because when you alter the molecules that comprise a cell, you give it a new repertoire of behavior quite frequently. So based on those two criteria, in that instant of sperm egg fusion, that event that takes less than a quarter of a second to to complete, you instantly create a new cell that has a, a new molecular composition. So all of the protein and lipid that used to be present on the surface of the sperm are now incorporated into the surface of this new cell. The cell used to have a genome derived only from sperm or only from egg, and now it has a genome that consists of material from both sperm and egg. So based on a change in material composition, there's no question that we have a new cell arising from the fusion of sperm and egg. This is a very fast process at the very beginning. If you look at how the cell behaves, you also see a very radical shift in the behavior of the cell. So the whole the whole business of an egg cell <laughs> is to find a sperm and fuse to it. And yet within seconds, literally seconds of the fusion of the membranes of the sperm and egg, this new cell, the zygote, the one-celled embryo, will initiate a molecular cascade um, that over the next 30 minutes will result in the destruction of all the binding sites that remain for sperm on the surface. So, you know, if the whole raison d'etre of being an egg is to find a sperm infused to it, this new mm-hmm. cell clearly, instantly, within seconds, enters into a, a radically different kind of cellular behavior to antagonize the very purpose of being an egg. And this is this is this radical shift in behavior is entering into a new a new cellular trajectory, into a new a new pattern that isn't consistent with this thing remaining an egg cell. And in fact it's not consistent with remaining a cell that's on its way to becoming anything other than an embryo. Because the only reason we want we want to block binding of additional sperm is because it's lethal to embryonic development to have, in most cases, to have more than two copies of DNA, one from mom, one from dad. So so this thing is acting like an embryo from the very beginning, from the instant of sperm egg fusion. And everything it does during those first 24 hours is, again, pointed towards the maturation of of this of this individual to to a mature human state, not towards anything else. So then you would say then that basically there, there is what we would call an instant of fertilization where the sperm and the eggs fuse together, and at that point, that's when the new human embryo comes into existence. Am I understanding correctly? That's that's what I would say the evidence the evidence mm-hmm. supports because okay. there's an instantaneous change in composition and an instantaneous mm-hmm. change in behavior of the cell to something that is not sperm-like and not egg-like. So I think I think it's unambiguous we have a new cell. The question is what kind of cell is it? Is it a human is it a human being or is it just a human cell, mm. a new kind of human cell that it's on its way to becoming a human being? On that note, 
we're going to go ahead and take a, a two-minute break or so. Uh, I have an ad here that I'm going to play, and when we come back, we will talk more with Dr. Maureen Kondik, and we'll go over some of the objections that I've seen raised to the science as well. So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. They are a small grassroots team of apologetic speakers, each of whom has their own small grassroots ministry. Then one day they had an idea. It started almost as a joke, but quickly bloomed into a full-fledged ministry plan. Gathered together as bloggers, podcasters, bloggers, and writers, each with their own small voice, but drowned out and passed over by the grandeur of celebrity apologists. From the eastern seaboard to the west coast and various locations in between, they come from different backgrounds, but they share one great message. This journey of these thinkers, each with his own small influence in some small corner of the Christian apologetics world, will finally converge in one location. They will meet one another for the very first time. This is a team of speakers like no other. Among them is a man who has struggled against seizures and brain surgery, and yet has remained brilliant in his defense of the gospel. A former atheist whose conversion to Christianity now has him battling the worldview he once held. A former gospel rapper whose ministry on behalf of urban believers fights for racial reconciliation. An elementary school teacher who strives to make apologetics accessible to the everyman. And finally, a man with Asperger's syndrome married to a woman with Asperger's syndrome. His passion, along with apologetics, is to keep the church informed on matters of how to minister to the autistic brothers and sisters in their midst and of the treasures that his unconventional marriage has been to him. In May of 2018, the group, now known as The Mentionables, will hold its very first national conference in Greensboro, North Carolina. This unusual group, The Mentionables, which came together almost by accident, now invite you to join them. Come see their messages united. Come see what small voices can do to present one loud noise to the kingdom. Join us for Mentionables, the conference 2018. For more information, visit the Mentionable Facebook group page or contact Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. Mentionable, the conference. Many small voices present one big message. All right, and we're back to the uh, Pro-Life Thinking podcast where we're talking with Dr. Maureen Kondik about the science of, of human embryology development and human fertilization. If you're listening and you have a call for Dr. Kondik, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, the number is 646-668-8597. And just transitioning back into where we were right before the break, asking what kind of the question, what kind of cell is it that has been conceived now? We know it's a new type of cell. So what are some good reasons that we can know that that new cell is the beginning, is the earliest stage of human life? That's an excellent question, and I think I think the answer turns on what's the difference between a human cell and a human organism or a human being. So we know a lot about cells. We know how they behave. <laughs> um, most people recognize living beings, but but don't have a good definition of them. So um, if you look it up, <laughs> what you'll find is something that focuses on a living being is something that is composed of parts all of which are working together in order to support the survival and health of the thing as a whole. Okay, so on the one hand, we would have a tumor, for example, that's just a collection of cells. The parts are chaotic. They don't relate to each other in any, in any supportive manner. And 
nothing about the activities of any of the parts uh, benefit the tumor as a whole. They're all just a collection of cells living together in a in a block of space. Whereas an organism is, you know, when you look at adult stages, for example, we have heart, we have liver, we have a bunch of parts, and all those parts relate to each other in a system that's designed to promote health and survival of the whole body. So when you look at that cell that's formed from the fusion of sperm and egg, in that one instant, the moment of conception, um, the real question is, is it, is it acting like a cell or is it acting like an organism? Is it, is it, it, are its activities and its parts designed to support the health and uh, survival of the thing as a whole or is it just acting like a cell that exists for its own sake? And I think the more we've learned about early human development, um, the answer is unambiguously, it's an organism. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Everything about the behavior of this cell from the very beginning is designed to promote the health and maturation of of a human individual. So even during that first cell cycle, all of the activities that happen in that first 24 hours are not things that cells need to do to be healthy. They're things that embryos need to do to be healthy. And once we have two cells or four cells, those cells are clearly interacting in complicated ways to promote the health and survival of the developing embryo and to build all the structures that you need for maturation. And then just kind of segueing into an objection that usually gets raised at this point, and I think you touched on it in probably the first piece I ever read of yours, Life, Defining the End by the Beginning, mm-hmm. is some people will, I guess, get kind of confused and they will say, well, it doesn't have a functioning brain. There's no brain in existence yet, so how can it be a living organism like a human being? Yeah, a lot of people like to um, kind of draw a parallel between brain death as the end of a human life and brain life as the beginning of a human life. Um, because it's it's symmetrical, and we we love symmetry as human beings. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah. but I think the challenge there is that first off, what um, what constitutes brain life is a is a very vague and fuzzy idea. Um, some people will say, well, when the brain starts exhibiting mature patterns of of um, neural behavior, but as a neuroscientist, I find that a very amusing criteria because the brain doesn't actually achieve mature patterns of neural behavior until about 25 years of age. So, <laughs> so that would make that would right. make everybody prior to age 25 a non-human. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think most parents Yeah, and I think most parents of teenagers might uh, approve of that definition too. Yeah, I, I I it's my own personal favorite when my kids were teenagers I could point to them right. and laugh and say you're not even a human being yet. You know, I can send right. you back to the human parts factory. <laughs> right. Yeah, like I said, I think that would discount me from being human person until for another two years or so. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, so the so what is a mature pattern of brain activity is a very hard thing to to define. Um, and moreover, even by the the most generous definition, you know, putting mature patterns of brain activity back to fetal stages, um, we still have the question of well, what then is this thing with fingers and toes and a circulatory system and a beating heart and functioning kidneys and um, all of these organs and pieces that are all working together and that clearly have a very straightforward relationship to to normal human structures. Um, how did that get about if if there wasn't 
a human organism there. Mm. So, so I think I think when people point to brain life or the onset of mature patterns of brain activity, what they're really pointing to is a, is a separate question. Um, so I said scientifically there were two questions about when life begins: when we have a new cell, and when we have, and when is that cell an organism? And I think the answer to those two questions are very straightforward and actually inarguable scientifically. Um, many have tried to argue with me, and I have yet to meet an argument <laughs> I can't defeat. Um, oh, well, well, but, but, uh, but the third question is, is really the question that most people gravitate to emotionally, which is not, is it a human organism, but does that human organism have value? Mm-hmm. And that is believed to be a question that we can answer as a society or as individuals based on based on whatever arbitrary criteria we like. So some people will point to consciousness or mature patterns of brain activity or viability or any other thing they want to point to and say that for me is the point at which this developing human being has value and has sufficient value that that we as a society um, should protect it. Yeah, well, another objection to the science that I often hear raised is the objection that, you know, embryos have the capacity to twin, and even ones that twin have the capacity then to recombine again. And so how can we say then that we have an individual human life if any given human embryo has has the potential ability to twin? Because it seems like at the very least we should place the beginning of human life you know, after the point uh, where the embryo splits off into two. Uh, what, what do you ordinarily say to someone who might raise that kind of objection? Well, I think this objection um, primarily comes from the unfamiliarity of of the notion of asexual reproduction. Mm. You know, people people know how humans reproduce, and we don't we don't do it that way. <laughs> so the notion <laughs> right. that you could split a human in half and come up with two humans seems very very foreign, and therefore um, something that we just we just reject because it can't possibly it can't possibly be the case that you could have a single human being who would do that. Now, from my perspective as a scientist, it's actually much less disturbing because we do this all the time. I mean, <laughs> you know, there are plenty right. of organisms that can be split in half and turned into two mm. organisms. Um, yeah. And the capability for doing this is just something that exists so early in human life that that it's unfamiliar. But it isn't it isn't unnatural. I mean, we are the mm. kind of we are the kind of creatures that can reproduce by splitting in half um, for the first 14 days of life. So, so the real underlying question is much more of a philosophical question. So, how could how could we have one one being or one soul um, in an embryo uh, if it can subsequently become two two individuals? I mean, I think I think ultimately that that is the question, and that that's a question that has a different kind of answer rather than a scientific answer. I mean, yeah, scientists would I, I, say yes, it can happen, but but a philosopher mm-hmm. would have a different answer to that. Yeah, I mean, would you like to take a stab at giving the philosophical response? Or I'd love to hear your thoughts if uh, <laughs> sure. If you put thoughts to that, okay? Yeah. I think I think um, I think philosophically, the difference stems on the different meanings of the word potential. So potential mm-hmm. is a word that gets thrown around a lot in the embryo debate, um, and yet potential has has mm-hmm more than one sense, more than one's meaning, um, and and really clearly parsing out what the potential to become two humans means is is the important philosophical part here. 
So Aristotle uh, defines or analyzes potentiality along two different axes. So active and passive. So if you have um, the active potential to do something, it means internal to yourself without anything added, you, you can you can do that thing. So I have the active potential for speech, even when I'm silent. So when I'm not speaking, I can still speak, and I don't need anything else to help me do that. Passive potential, on the other hand, is the ability to be made into something by the action of somebody else. So a tree has the passive potential to become a chair if a carpenter acts on it. It can't become a chair all on its own. Mm. So active and passive, and then proximate and remote. So proximate potential is something that you have the capability of doing right now. So, for example, I have the active proximate potency to speech because I know how to speak, and even when I'm silent and not speaking, I can do it on my own. Um, Whereas when I was a little girl, you know, a toddler or a baby before I learned how to speak, I had the remote potency to speech. So I had all the structures in my brain and in my larynx and everything else that would enable me to speak, but I couldn't speak yet because I didn't have language. I had to learn language, and then my remote potency became a proximate one. Similarly, a tree that's a sapling, you know, only a very young tree, um, has the remote potency, remote passive potency to become a chair if somebody acts on it that way, but it can't become one now. So when you think about the potency of the embryo, you, it's important to understand that prior to splitting, you have a unified, developing, single individual. It has the active proximate potency to develop as a human being. It also has the remote and passive potency to develop as two human beings if somebody comes in and splits it in two. So once you split it in two, it now... The, the remote potency to be two individuals becomes proximate, and you have a behavior that you would never have before. So the fact that it can become two individuals says nothing about what it was prior to the splitting. Hmm. You know, and I think when we think of more common terms like, you know, an earthworm, if you cut an earthworm in half, each side can regenerate to become a full earthworm, but that doesn't mean there wasn't a single earthworm there in the beginning. And it doesn't mean we have to withhold our judgments about whether that was a single organism <laughs> until <laughs> right. evolutionary time makes it impossible for earthworms to regenerate once they're split in two. I love that response. I, I'm actually uh, very much Aristotelian myself uh, when it comes to you know arguing the uh, the abortion issue. And I read a lot of modern mm-hmm. Thomas like uh, Ed Fazer and uh, J.P. Moreland and, and, and those guys too as well as reading the uh, the classics as well. So yeah, I definitely appreciate the, the discussion of potency. And I think it's a very important distinction to keep in mind because uh, as Ed Fazer uh, talks about, if you neglect to make these distinctions, then you're, you're going to be totally off the rails when it comes to how you think about the abortion issue. So the, it brings a lot of clarity if you um, talk about these different types of potency that, uh, that we all have. So I think I it's very think helpful. Because, because I think a lot of people... Um, what becomes worrisome to them is the notion that you have a whole bunch of little individuals crammed together in a single embryo and mm. that somehow they have to resolve into one individual, whereas, whereas that's really completely not the case. I mean, every single cell in the embryo is working as a part of a unified whole to- 
towards the development of a single individual. And if splitting occurs, then the remote potency that those cells had to become independent persons, independent mm. human beings, becomes activated. But it doesn't it doesn't exist in an active sense until the splitting occurs. So there's no there's no fighting of the souls duking it out trying to decide who gets <laughs> to be the one who <laughs> survives right, yeah. <laughs> prior to twinning. <laughs> right. You know, something else that I I wanted to ask about is also the uh, miscarriage objection. And you and I talked about this via email about the miscarriage rate and what may be the cause of that. And I think I remember reading somewhere, there is the theory that most of the miscarriages are of entities that where fertilization did not take place properly. Mm -hmm. Well, it's clear that um, there's a lot of malformed gametes or gametes that are not sufficient to uh, produce a human being when they fuse. Um, we know this just from uh, anatomically examining gametes and also from studying cases of human infertility uh, that that clearly show abnormalities in um, a relatively high percentage of, of gametes. So surely it's the case that a fair number of, of cases where uh, miscarriage occurs um, prob- it is possible that the entity that was produced was not a developing human, um, but rather a collection of cells that that didn't have um, sufficient organization to be an embryo and weren't capable of surviving beyond a relatively short period of time. But but I think the real challenge in the whole marriage debate <laughs> is um, is that there's a lot of assertion here that has nothing to do with reality. Um, it's often claimed, for example, that 70% or 50% or some large percentage of conceptions um, die before a woman even knows she's pregnant. I mean, it says that on the NIH's website. <laughs> it says that if you go to the CDC. I mean, it's it's repeated over and over again. But what's the basis for this figure? So I recently had occasion to look into this because I've been asked so many times. Um, and as it turns out, there's almost no basis. Um, you know that that if if a woman has has intercourse during a fertile period and doesn't end up pregnant, there are a bunch of reasons why that could occur. Maybe she didn't ovulate, in which case there was no egg to fertilize, no embryo to be lost. And right. recent studies suggest that anovulation or non-functional ovulation occurs in something as high as 27 to 40 percent of menstrual cycles in normal cycling women. So what's the rate of how many times does a woman does a woman who who's had intercourse not get pregnant? It's around 40%. <laughs> so so if we simply look at anov- ovulation, it's clearly a huge component of of yeah. what happens when a woman doesn't get pregnant. So then there's also maybe the eggs don't fertilize. And we know less about this, but we do know from IVF clinics that with healthy donor eggs from women of known fertility, roughly 28% don't fertilize. Mm. So, so we have maybe let's just say 30% non-ovulation, 30% non-fertilization, and those two factors alone more than account for the 40% of cases where women don't get pregnant. <laughs> okay, but, right. but still, maybe there was an egg. And there was a sperm, and they did get together. But given the very high percentage of 
abnormal egg and sperm, maybe what was produced was not an embryo. And Mm. this becomes more of a philosophical discussion. I mean, a lot of people want to say any product of sperm and egg getting together is clearly an embryo. But I think, um, you know, what what if a sperm fertilizes an egg that's abnormally lost all of its nuclear material? So that thing that got fertilized, isn't even a living cell, as far as I'm concerned, as a biologist. And what gets yeah. produced in that case clearly cannot be an embryo. It's it's actually goes on to produce a, a particular kind of tumor, a complete hydatidiform mole. So, so certainly there are cases where something that came out of the testes and something that came out of the ovaries and that looked kind of like a sperm and an egg got together, but mm. did not produce an embryo. And we don't know what percentage that is. Uh, but again, from IVF data... That could also be as high as 30%. So we're up to like 90% of of potential explanations for why a woman doesn't end up pregnant. Um, And yet, in 40 to 60% of the cases, she does. So so as far as I'm concerned, the evidence strongly indicates that there's almost Mm -hmm. no loss of embryos uh, prior prior to implantation. So, so this whole 50% pre-implantation embryo loss, I think, is just made up. Then what happens yeah, well, with miscarriage after that point? That, that's that also becomes becomes a question. I think, I think right. certainly after the point where there's a what they call a clinical pregnancy, so a detection of heartbeat or of the amniotic sac, clearly that is something that has undergone some degree of development, and I think has to be considered an embryo. So that's a real embryo loss. But that's 7 to 10% of all pregnancies. Mm. Um, what happens when we detect a pregnancy just by the normal chemical pregnancy test uh, for human chorionic gonadotropin, the sort of the, dip, the dipstick test that everybody can buy in the grocery store? Um, that, that's a little more ambiguous because lots of, lots of things that aren't embryos can make that chemical. Mm. So I think some percentage of those are likely to be real embryos that are lost, and some percentage are likely to be non-embryos, but we don't really know what the, what the distinction is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which how much of each. So, right. but right. even so, that's somewhere between thirteen percent of all pregnancies, somewhere around that that range. So, I think actual yeah. early miscarriage is a, probably a pretty rare event. So, when I talk about how scientists are in agreement on the on the biology of human development, I'm usually pretty careful to say uh, that embryologists are in consistent agreement without major controversy that human life begins with fertilization. <laughs> and that's because I, I occasionally encounter a biologist like PZ Myers or some biologist who who might come along and, and, and say, well, no, you know, no, no one knows when, when life begins. And that's an actual scientist saying that. And what I've usually found is the case is that they actually do agree with us on the science. They're just equivocating on the term life because what they mean by life right. is valuable life, not biological life, when biological life begins. And so sometimes when I make the claim that embryologists are in consistent agreement on this question, often they'll come with a quote from some de- developmental biologist or something saying that, you know, no one knows when an individual life begins because human life began thousands of years ago. So we can't hmm. say that an individual human life begins with fertilization. It seems here again that this kind of thing might be going on, or I don't know if they, if they legitimately <laughs> think that that means that we can't tell when a, a human life begins, but how, how would you respond to someone who makes that kind of an argument? You mean after I stop laughing? <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So after I think I laughter laughing, is probably appropriate too. So <laughs> After I stop laughing, I would, I would, I would try with 
as little condescension as I could muster, to to point out to the person that there's a difference between evolution and the life of an individual, and that this is a well-established scientific concept. Nobody nobody imagines that I'm a um, a new life phase of my mother or my grandmother or my great grandmother. Um, right. Clearly. I'm a unique individual with unique genetic composition, with a unique um, biological composition, molecular composition beyond my genetics, and there's 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 absolutely no question that that those are two different questions. When did life originate? When did the human species originate? Is an evolutionary biology question, open to a lot of speculation and a number of valid answers. But when did I begin as an individual incidence of that? species, I think is absolutely unambiguous. So they're just trying to conflate things, or they haven't thought about it very clearly. When I first heard P.Z. Myers say that, I'm sitting here listening to it as a college undergrad in criminal justice, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going, how can you say something so dumb? I mean... (laughs) Right, and actually, I've actually written articles responding to the claims that P.Z. Myers has written. So, well, I, just... I'm sure you have a better answer than I do then, but but I think I think oh. it seems that this is just conflation of, of two different things in order to intimidate people and try to make it right. less clear than it really is. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I, I'm glad to, to get your, your thoughts on that, too, because, you know, I, I study a lot of philosophy, and I, I, I consider myself pretty well-educated philosophically, but it, it's really great to have these responses and get the perspective of, mm-hmm. uh, of an academic scientist. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to to consider but, your views as well. And if, you know, I might incorporate some of your uh, views into my responses in the future. So, But yeah. the but the value question really brings us back to what we discussed before, which is mm. that, you know, the, the scientific questions of when do we get a new cell type, when is that cell type an organism distinct from merely a human cell? I think those mm. questions are are really quite incontrovertibly proven by, by the existing mm. body of data. But the values question, the question of when does an individual human life have value of sufficient sufficient to merit legal protection and moral status. Mm -hmm. I think those those are questions that people have a lot of different answers to. And and yet you know, I think I think Ultimately, this is where, if we could just do away with with the the red herring question of when life begins and the fact that no one knows, and really focus on the values question, I think, I think we get a lot more traction because, because there are only so many ways to answer that question of value, and yeah. most of them people find quite repugnant <laughs> because they defy <laughs> right. our sense of justice and of equality, mm. and of basic liberty, freedom, fairness. All of all of the things that that people hold very dearly to, the notion that we could find a characteristic in an individual, you know, for example, um, brain activity, and say, well, you know, below a certain bar you're not a human, and above a certain bar you are, in spite of the fact that you're clearly a human organism and you're clearly undergoing development, and if we just left you alone, you would you would make it up to that bar eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as soon as you put it to people that way and you say, all right, well, if that's the case, what happens to people who are born who never met the bar? You know, how do we look at them? Are they are they food? Mm. Are they sex toys? Are mm. they research animals? What about people who were above the bar but fell below it as a mm. consequence of injury or right. disease? Do they get grandfathered in <laughs> because they were humans <laughs> once? And if so, how can we possibly justify that if we're excluding mm. people who never attained the bar? And then what right. about the end of life? 
you know, we're all facing, in all likelihood, a gradual decline in our mental capabilities. What happens if you're above the bar initially, but you fall below it as you age? Do you do you revert to one of those unpleasant categories of sex toy, food, or research subject? Really? I think I think people, when you put it to them this way, that that if if we are not assigning value to people based on some intrinsic aspect of what they are, then then it becomes completely arbitrary, not just for embryos, but for all of us. Yeah, you know, actually, just before we wrapped up, I wanted to uh, make sure we at least gave you a plug for your uh, forthcoming book, Dr. Kondek. Been very excited for this one, actually, reading through some of the materials you sent me from it. And I have to say, I think it's probably one of my favorite academic-level pro-life defenses. You could just, just talk to us about it a little bit, what you're going to be covering and uh, what it's called and your basis for writing it. Well, this is this is a very interesting collaboration that came about from many, many years of my brother, who's a... Um, doctor in philosophy and myself fighting over terminology. <laughs> we we couldn't communicate because every every way that we tried to talk to each other we had such a different vocabulary. Um mm. and yet we were both convinced that we were looking at the same world and therefore there had to be a common language. So after many, many years of of an ongoing discussion, we kind of came up with a Rosetta Stone that enabled us to talk to each other. And mm. Um, eventually decided, you know, it would be good for us to to try to work together to to talk to both sides, the scientific side and the philosophical side about the embryo, mm. and uh, build build some arguments or some counter arguments to the to the common objections that the embryo can't be a human because, uh, both from the perspective of philosophy and also from the perspective of science. And so that's what we're attempting to do. I think I think it's a, a very unique combination because, you know, most people don't have a few decades and a lot of motivation because it's your sibling to to work through <laughs> building right. the common terminology that's necessary. So so um, I think it's a, I think it's a fabulous a fabulous book. I'm really proud of it, and and I think it should be an interesting read to anyone who hmm. wants to see the question from both of those perspectives. Yeah, it sounds great. Uh, I'm looking forward to, it, to having it come out. And uh, getting my hands on the copy sounds like a, an interesting read. Well, thank you. Yeah. So it's human embryo, human being, uh, a scientific and philosophic inquiry or investigation, I think. Okay. By Samuel Kondik yeah, and Maureen Kondik. Yeah, I read through. In fact, we might have to get your brother on actually after the book comes out, so we can uh, get him to talk about the terminology that he uses. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure he'd be honored and happy to happy to speak with you. Mm. Where can people find you online if you have any uh, groupies or or anyone who wants to uh, <laughs> to come and and you know keep up with your with your work? You know, um, a I'm old. B I'm a bit of a luddite, and C scientists don't do groupies. So so you know I have you know a university web page. I have I have, but but all of them are horribly out of date and and yeah. really oh, okay. don't, don't say anything active about what I do. Um, if yeah. people have questions and and uh you know i'm 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 surprised how many people take it upon themselves to find my email and write to me and mm. i generally do my best to try to, to try to respond so long as it's a serious yeah. question um and you know i'm i'm always happy to try to to try to straighten people out if if um <laughs> if, if they take right. the trouble to formulate a question for me well, once again, I'd like to thank you, uh, Nathan, for, for joining me here to interview uh, Dr. Maureen Kondik 
and I'd like to thank anyone out there uh, for, for listening. And Maureen, I'd like to just thank you again for coming on and, and allowing us to pick your brain for an hour or so. You're most welcome. So uh, we just ask that you please share this around your uh, social media, uh, rate and review us on our Facebook page and on uh, on iTunes if you feel so inclined. Uh, also, this is a, a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As uh, Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. That's the Life Training Institute website. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And uh, if you'd like to donate to the podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in the notes. And donations are also tax deductible. Now, next week, we'll return with our weekly content this coming uh, Sunday, uh, hopefully if I can get it uh, done in time. This Sunday, our discussion is going to be on basically infanticide. There was a viral video released by Students for Life of America in which a student was talking about personhood, and we're going to be joined by our colleague in LTI, Jay Watts. So once again, I would like to thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.